Hello, and welcome to episode 99 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. My name is Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com, and today I'm joined by Julie DeCaro, author of the new book, Sidelined, Sports, Culture, and Being a Woman in America, which comes out Tuesday. Julie is a senior writer and editor for Deadspin. She's been a Chicago sports radio host, and before that, she was a practicing attorney. Uh, I've spent much of this week reading Sidelined, which is a really good book about issues that too often get swept under the rug in sports. And I've really been looking forward to this conversation. So, Julie, welcome. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I'm glad we could do this. Uh, so let's let's start with a big one. It seems like one of the biggest problems when journalists want to write about so-called controversial topics is that sports media is kind of expected to be public relations. Um, outlets are either owned by the league or they carry broadcasts of the home team's games or the league controls access to sources that are necessary to do your job. How do you navigate that challenge of talking about things that the league or the team doesn't want you to talk about and they have so much power to stop you from doing so? Yeah, uh, I don't, which is probably part of the reason why I'm not working in radio anymore. Um, yeah, I mean, it is a big problem. We were just talking about this at my current job yesterday that, um, you know, there are a lot of people who uh, work for, you know, an increasingly smaller number of outlets um, who are expected to sort of toe the line. And, and no one ever overtly says that to you, but you sort of understand. And I mean, I've had people, I wanted to write an article about someone, for example, who was a frequent guest on our radio station, who was another person in the media. And I was told, um, we will never publish that article. Um, so, you know, and, and I talk in my book about some of the head, head to head things I had with the Chicago Cubs um, about just speaking very openly and honestly about things that were happening around the team. So um, it's a big problem. And, and unfortunately, I don't see it changing because there is just too much money in um, and not only that, I mean, media is, is a changing landscape right now where everyone is concerned about their job and we're watching jobs go away all the time. You know, we just saw 47 people laid off by HuffPost, which isn't necessarily sports, but in media in general, you're just watching the jobs just disappear, it seems like, at the end of, you know, Infinity War. So um, it's it's a big problem. And, and I don't know that, you know, I know people that are frustrated in the industry. They feel that they've been muzzled. Um, they want to be able to talk about certain things, for example, you know, concussions in the NFL. And they're not allowed to, but, you know, one of the tactics that the big outlets have is, you know, buy, hire the critics and pay them a lot of money and then muzzle them. And so um, it's one of those things that is so insidious and it's happened so gradually that I don't know that people have necessarily even noticed it. I mean, I, it's kind of par for the course to hear journalists say now, oh, yeah, but I can't write that because we have a partnership with the NFL. And and. It, you know, and, and I think having gone to journalism and been trained in sort of old school journalism, that kind of thing is is really shocking uh, to keep hearing from people. Yeah, it, and it, one I was really struck in your book. You're talking about someone. I think I think it was about the Cubs. You said someone worked in the Cubs PR department uh, that their their job was basically to to chase down negative mentions and call people's bosses. I mean, that's just mind-blowing to me that that sort of thing exists yeah. and I mean it seems like that you, you said that in the book it means that you end up self-censoring it doesn't even get to the point where mm -hmm. you write the story that gets you in trouble you don't even write the story in the first place and, and it seems like like you say it's it's people are getting muzzled by getting hired into the the team uh, the, the, the league or the team owned outlets and and yeah it just it keeps spiraling downward and I wonder since since sports reporters are told to 
stick to sports and there is this muzzling going on. Do you think that reporters on other beats outside of sports should do more to pick up the slack when it comes to things like domestic violence allegations against players? Because if if the sports page isn't going to be able to cover that stuff, should other people be picking up that slack? Yeah, for, for sure. And, and, um, and it's probably where it belongs in the first place, right? I mean, it's probably, we should probably have this stuff reported on by crime reporters, you know, just like we do everywhere else. I mean, I think a perfect example of someone who was just in way over their head was when Adam Schefter interviewed Greg Hardy, um, you know, after, after when he was returning to the Cowboys and basically softballed him a bunch of questions. Um, these these need to be reported on by people that know what they're talking about, either because they've spent time in the criminal justice system or they've worked with domestic violence victims or, you know, for whatever reason, they just have, um, you know, they've educated themselves about what the right questions are to ask and how to cover it. Um, you know, pro football um, talk especially is, is one that has made a lot of just sort of off the cuff comments about domestic violence victims that have been really upsetting over the years. And Mike Florio is an attorney, you know, he should know better um, than to have, it necessarily wasn't coming from Mike. I think it was coming from people who write for him, but you know, there was one about Greg Hardy's victim. There was one piece there about Greg Hardy's victim. And it was sort of like, you know, Oh, how come the prosecutor can't find her? And it was like a joke, you know? And of course what had happened was that he had basically settled with her out of court informally to get her to not come. And that was never anything that was even mentioned. It was sort of, you know, he made a big joke out of the fact that it was like, he was doing kind of like a where's Waldo or where in the world's Carmen San Diego kind of thing. And it was like, that's not where you should be in a domestic violence case. When someone looks like they've been hit by a car coming out of a, you know, an abusive fight with this person. So um, I don't know that people that, that haven't spent time in the system necessarily have the right sensitivity to talk about it. I know there are reporters who have gone out of their way to educate themselves to make sure that they know what they're talking about, which is what you should do in any situation where you don't really understand. I mean, if I'm writing about, you know, injuries and surgery, I'm going to go talk to a doctor about it and say, you know, what does this mean? How does this look? What are his chances for recovery? How often does uh, recovery take, you know, those kinds of questions. But it feels like when it comes to sexual assault and domestic violence, everyone thinks they're an expert and that they can just, you know, they can handle it. And, you know, honestly, like I said, it probably really should be covered by, crime reporters. Um, but, you know, unfortunately, there's enough work for them to do anyway. So it sort of gets left to the sports reporters. Yeah, I'm not sure what is is worse, the idea that everyone acts like they're an expert about uh, sexual harassment or sexual assault or the idea that everyone is, um, if, that, yeah. if, if, if it's seriously true that they're experts. Um, there's a there's a current kind of ongoing thing that's been shunted to the background in tennis. I don't know whether you, I, I know you're not primarily a tennis person and I mean I'll forgive you nobody's perfect but I do uh, love to watch it I'll say that I just you know I'm not as I'm not as uh, educated on it as I am on other topics that's okay we talk enough tennis on I mean it is the tennis (laughs) abstract podcast so you know I probably should keep it mostly to tennis but you know it's whatever um but have you followed the story concerning Alexander Zverev at all I have not okay he's a he's a young German player he's in the top 10 very I mean he very probably a future number one player and in the last year there uh, i don't remember the exact dates but a woman accused him of of domestic violence um we don't need to get into all the details they don't matter for the purpose of this conversation but 
the accusation was made. She was profiled. She didn't go to, she didn't file a formal complaint or legal, legal complaint. And Zverev has just denied it. And because this is tennis and everybody's pretty much friends uh, or I mean, has to pretend to stay friends at the very least, like it's pretty much, it's pretty much been dropped aside from maybe a couple of reporters who are keeping it going. And one thing that really interested me throughout your book was this, was just the idea of, of how do you cover these things? Because if there is someone who has served a suspension or has been accused of something and they keep playing, like you're saying these names as a, as a reporter or a radio host, like you're talking about these people constantly. And how do you continue to cover that player when that sort of thing is out in the open and just sort of perpetually unresolved? Yeah. And I think, you know, and I do know about Zarev. I'm obviously aware of him. We've written about him at Deadspin, but I had not heard this. And I feel like I have heard, I hear all the domestic violence um, accusations because everyone comes to me on Twitter and is like, Hey, did you see this? So I'm surprised that that didn't come across my radar. Um, you know, here's the issue. We never resolve these cases. It's always the same old thing. So when I was, when I was a defense attorney, I was, I defended guys in domestic violence court and, you know, all so many times you would see the victim. Oh, I want to drop the charges. I'm not coming to court or I'm just not going to show up. I really, this is between us. We really don't want the government involved. Um, and a lot of times victims were intimidated into not coming to court because they knew what was going to be waiting for them at home if they did go to court. So there are a million reasons why cases get dropped um, or why the prosecutor, and that's in a regular case. That's like just Joe Schmo and, you know, Shirley Schmo. When, when it's in the glare of the public spotlight, um, unless you have a extremely strong drive to get justice or for yourself, or um, you've got someone really advocating for you. Um, it's, it's 10 times, you're under 10 times more pressure to drop the case because not only do you have, you know, you're worried about the guy losing his money. You're worried about, um, you know, what's going to happen to you. He's just going to be more angry with you. Um, you're also got people looking at you, focusing on you, calling you names, digging into your background, trying to find dirt on you. So it's no wonder why, you know, these cases go away and then the prosecutors come forward and say, we didn't have enough evidence, which the public always takes as there wasn't any evidence. Um, when what it really means is the victim refused to talk to us. So these cases are, as you said, unresolved. And I think that's part of the reason why it's so frustrating for reporters and why we feel like we have to bring these things up every time we talk about them, because we never get any resolution. Um, even if, you know, a guy gets suspended from Major League Baseball for 40 days or, or 40 games or whatever, it's still just a baseball suspension. It's like there's nothing that happened that said, yes, this is what he did. And this is what, um, you know, this is the penance he needs to pay, whether it's you know, community service or going to counseling or, you know, uh, going to jail or whatever it is. So it feels unresolved and, and it feels to a lot of women reporters, and I'm sure men too have experienced domestic violence in their lives, that um, it's just unfair and unjust. And that's when I think you feel like you want to bring it up every single time because you want to tell people, oh, by the way, this guy got away with sexual assault or this guy got away with it. And when everyone just ignores it and pretends like it didn't happen, which is sort of the way we go about it, like media is under this impression that like if nothing comes of it, then you can never speak of it again. Um, and that's why those of us that care deeply about these issues wind up just being like, you know, parrots on Twitter and stuff, just like, oh, just to remind you that this guy was, you know, accused of domestic violence by three different women and nothing ever happened to him. 
because it just feels so unfair. And it's like everyone else has just moved on and you feel an obligation to the victim to be like, no, remember this? Remember this about this guy? How about if we don't put him on you know, national commercials? How about if we don't put him making the face of the franchise? Um, and that's, I think, where you know we feel that obligation to keep reminding people. And that, in turn, aggravates fans who don't want to think about it anymore. And then it brings harassment and blowback on us. And the whole thing is just a horrible, toxic cycle that feels like it keeps repeating itself over and over again yeah it is it 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 is such a tricky situation just be in large part because it is so unresolvable and 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 i obviously i totally understand why these things get settled out of court why the the victims don't want to subject themselves to really any kind of attention given how bad that can get so quickly um so it, 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 you mentioned MLB, for instance, suspending players, but that that that's in, inadequate in a lot of ways. It ha, do you see any way for these sorts of situations to to be resolved to the extent that, that you don't feel the need to keep bringing it up? Like some way to make everybody feel like, okay, this guy screwed up. He has done his penance. I mean, what what does that penance look like? Oh, it's a really good question because there's a lot of uh, conversation about, you know, what a victim-centered um, justice looks like, right? And that's not something that we've ever necessarily cared about in this country before. We feel like, you know, lock, you know, throw them, lock them up and throw away the key and that's good for the victim. And it's not always. I mean, especially if victims rely on this guy for, you know, helping with childcare 50% of the time or, you know, rely on him financially, Um you know, having this guy, having go to jail or, you know, not be able to play baseball and lose out on 40 games worth of money is not necessarily good for the victim either. So I don't really know what the answer is. There's people way smarter than me that have been working on this for a really long time. Um, You know, one of the things that I think Major League Baseball gets sort of right, and no one else does this. I mean, no one else really in football, for sure, the NFL does not send guys to counseling. Their, Their punishment is purely punitive. There's no kind of restorative justice involved in it at all. Um, they send them to counseling or they have them evaluated by an expert to see if they need counseling and they do have them go through counseling. Now, here's the problem. Um, true batterer intervention counseling is something that takes months and sometimes years. Um, I had someone who works in that industry tell me that, you know, after six months, they feel like they're just scratching the surface um, of, of, you know, what's what, you know, they need to get to with with abusers. And the other thing is that the most effective tool they have for treating abusers is to have them in group settings with other abusers, because we all know abusers are great bullshitters. Can I say that on here? Can I say a swear word? Sure, yeah. Um, <laughs> they're great. They're very charming. Um, they're very good at manipulating and fooling people. So it's great to have, you know, a bunch of abusers who can call each other out on their BS. So you know, you can't do that if you're traveling with your team. You can't be in 18 months or two years of group therapy with other abusers. It's just your schedule doesn't allow for it. And baseball doesn't necessarily hold them to that standard either. It's sort of like, you know, it can be counseling sessions on the phone, one-on-one with a therapist who talks to you about how to better control your anger. I mean, so it's, 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 they're sort of on the right track, but they're not, um, they, they're not requiring these guys to put in the work that they probably should because they can't, because their schedules just don't allow for it. So that is one area that I think we could really improve in. But I think that, you know, the domestic violence community as a whole is really sort of struggling to try to see what a victim-centered justice would look like. Yeah, and you point out in the book that, that group settings can be tricky with athletes because... Uh, 
they're not just a regular guy. And I mean, mm-hmm. the other people in the group are going to be familiar with them for their sporting exploits. You have a, a really chilling story in the book about w- one guy who, who went to court and the jury who, who decided to let him off was posing with for selfies with him after the, yeah. the verdict was, and that's, that, that's just, I mean, that, that kind of makes a mockery of the, of the whole process. Um, another thing you mentioned about that, that I, that I thought was a, a really important point is how much power like, the athletes who are often very rich and the teams, which are always very rich, have to, to handle the disputes or try to control the disputes, manipulate the victims. Is there any way of sort of negating that or, or putting the victims on more of an even keel against these sort of financial legal juggernauts that have experience shutting down these sorts of issues? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, the leagues could do that, right? I mean, the leagues could have some big time attorney on retainer and say, you know, if these allegations come up, we're going to provide you with an attorney, but that's not the way it works. And they're not going to do that because it's in their interest to have these cases go away as well. Uh, so yeah, I mean, Kathy Redmond makes a great point in my book that, you know, when we look at someone who is like Ben Roethlisberger and, and we look at him and he's accused and it's this woman and you say, oh, it's, it's her word against his. No, it's her word against his word, his attorney's word, the Steelers, his PR machine, um, his publicist, all the people, all the team that he has working behind him that, that a lot of big time athletes do. And they are able to do things like hire private detectives to dig up dirt on the victims and hire investigators to go talk to every single one of their friends and find out exactly how many guys they've slept with and bring that up and try to paint them, you know, and they leak things to the media about. And people just eat it up and buy it as if this is like, you know, fair game. And it's really not. And so, you know, in the Derrick Rose case, um, I was really impressed with the victim because she was up against a machine like that and she just refused to back down. Um, and, you know, whether you, no matter what you thought of that case, um, I think it says something when a victim is, you know, I mean, the judge in that case had to tell the lawyers to stop slut shaming her in court. It was, it was really horrible. And uh, she just refused to drop the case. She refused to back down when she lost. She said, I'm going to appeal. That was the case where they were all taking pictures with, with Derek Rose after, after they found him uh, not liable because it was a civil case. Um, you know, and, and so I don't think people necessarily realize what these women are going up against when they take on these guys and when they come out publicly and say, you know, yes, this is what happened to me. So, um, yeah, I mean, and it's, you know, and, and stuff gets leaked and then it goes all over social media and then people are like, oh my God, guess what I heard about this chick and, you know, everyone, and then suddenly it's like, it's not true anymore. When I mean, in reality, what that person has done up until that point in their life has absolutely nothing to do with whether or not they were sexually assaulted on a certain night. Um, but, you know, it's, I don't know, it's one of those things where I feel like we need to better educate the public, but then you see some of the things that are said on social media and are said, I mean, in response to reports about sexual assault and rape by athletes and domestic violence by athletes. And it's just, sometimes it just feels like there is no hope for society. Yeah. I mean, that, that is one, one cynical viewpoint someone can come away from your book with is there's just so much bad stuff uh, that it, 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 it's tough to see how you get out of the cycles that led to them in the first place. Um, okay. I, I, I promised earlier already that we talk about Serena Williams and you talk about her in your book and 
always interesting to talk Serena and in in general not just Serena specific but do you feel that female sports stars are held to a higher standard than men's sports stars are I do if they're black or if they're people of color yeah I mean I, I when it comes to I mean I always think of like Katarina Vitt right and you know how the the press just ate her up because she was pretty and she was petite and you know, and, and she wasn't necessarily doing routines that were as skilled as Debbie Thomas was at the time, who was the American figure skater. But everyone loved Katarina Vitt. And I think, you know, that sort of thing happens quite a bit in sports where they just sort of fall in love with one particularly pretty um, white woman. Um, but yeah, in general, I mean, I do think they're held to higher standards. And I think as especially when they're marginal parts of marginalized groups like you're if you're black or if you're a person of color um and i think that you know just thinking back in that chapter on some of the things that men have done and said to officials during their time on the court and what happened with serena in the u.s open in 2018 2018 right was it 2018 2019 was so minor compared to that and yet it blew up into this enormous you know thing and it's just sort of like you know if she was a guy. I mean, and I think I put examples in there of stuff that, that that Nadal had said to the same ref and stuff that Djokovic has said to the same ref and nothing like that ever happened. So, I mean, yeah, I do think in some ways women are expected to sort of walk the line between being feminine, which we equate with being meek and subservient and um, not losing your cool and not getting angry and also being a powerful athlete. And, you know, men don't have to walk that same line because we the things we equate with being a good athlete are the same things that we equate with being masculine. So it's, it's, it's unfair. It's interesting that last year at the U S open Novak Djokovic was disqualified in the fourth round. I think it was for, for hitting a lines person with an errant (laughs) ball. And, and I can't help but wonder if he was disqualified as sort of a lingering effect of what happened to Serena and that if you do defend the officials treatment of Serena, it's on this very like legalistic technical interpretation of the rules, which says, okay, you can say that she did these things so we can assess these penalties. But as you point out, then of course those penalties aren't universally applied or even often applied. So then the Jovac, Novak Djokovic situation comes along and it's like, Ooh, we, we have to stick with this. So I, I wonder is if we get to the point where men and women stars are treated equally, um, would you rather they're all held to this super high standard of following the rules to the T or would you rather they're all treated like white men stars are treated now? That's a great question. Cause I feel like there were some really hysterical moments from like John McEnroe back in the eighties that would be kind of fun to see that brought back. I mean, <laughs> can we have something in the middle? I mean, do we have to, you know, be so ticky tack with the rules necessarily? I don't know. I mean, I don't know what the answer to that is. Um, it's just, it's frustrating to watch women and, and watch men and Serena in particular, because there are a lot of feels like white men who are particularly offended by Serena Williams and just her existence. And I think what she and Venus have gone through at Indian Wells and, you know, I mean, we all know the stories of Carolyn Wozniacki, like stuffing her butt and stuffing her bra and pretending to be Serena and, um, you know, the horrible caricatures of her that have existed throughout her career, whether it's cartoonists or, you know, whatever it is, it's just so upsetting to watch. And I don't know that we've ever had a man a male athlete in any sport who's been 
subjected to that kind of um, scrutiny and mockery, much less someone who is, you know, one of the greatest athletes who's ever existed and possibly the greatest in their sport. So uh, I don't know what the answer to that is. I mean, I would like to see them treat everybody like human beings to make allowances when there should be allowances and to hold people to the letter of the rules when it calls for it. But I just don't know that, you know, the patriarchy and misogyny and sexism and misogynoir and racism is so ingrained in our society that I just don't know that that's even possible for people. Yeah, it's hard. And in, 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 in sports, especially you have this, this balance between like setting out rules for everything, but also allowing officials some freedom to have the sport go in a you know, fan friendly way, or I don't know. Um, it, it's, it, it's a really difficult balance to strike. Um, what do you think the media does wrong when it comes to, I mean, apart from the, the horrible caricatures, which I think we can, we can take that as red. Um, what does the media do wrong when it comes to Serena Williams? Hmm. Huh, that's a that's a great question. Well, I mean, I think um, there are I, I think that they are always looking for her challenger in a way that they don't they haven't necessarily with other athletes. Right. So and I mean, she's been, uh, you know, at the top for so long. Uh, that that it's just sort of, you know, what's the, because you're always looking for the story, right? What's the story going to be? And you're taught in journalism school to tell the story of a match. So if the story isn't, the story can't be, oh, Serena's going to destroy someone again because she's the greatest ever. Like that's been the story too many times. So, you know, they're constantly looking for who's up and coming, who's the next person who's going to take her down. And I do think there's been too much focus on the way she conducts herself on the court. Um, like I said, you know, in the way that they don't do the same for men. Um, and I also think that, you know, right now with the conversation um, about, you know, whether or not she's she's on her way out, I don't understand necessarily why we have to have a narrative about this. Like, I feel like Serena has earned, I mean, we all want to see her break Margaret Court's record, right? I mean, I desperately want to see her break Margaret Court's record. Um, and I'm still hopeful that she'll catch lightning in a bottle in a tournament or two and, and get there. I think that she has earned the right to go out on her own and go out on her own terms. And, and I want to just enjoy her while we still have her. Um, meanwhile, you know, cause I'm, I, you know, I grew up watching Michael Jordan. I'm not able to watch Michael Jordan anymore. I have to sort of try to describe to my kids what it was like to watch Michael Jordan. And I feel like it's going to be the same thing with Serena Williams. Once she is gone, it is going to be just an enormous loss um, in being able to watch her play tennis. And, my podcast partner, Jane McManus, wrote a great piece at Deadspin, sort of countering the narrative about Naomi as, as, Naomi as uh, Serena's rival, saying that, you know, she is not her rival. She is her legacy. There are all these young women of color playing tennis because of the Williams sisters. And I thought that was a really great point that I wish uh, the general media would make more. Yeah, the fact that we can talk about Osaka and Serena as rivals is just another testament to Serena Williams that she's, yeah. she's good enough at age 38 or whatever she is now to, to have a rival who's 23 and entering her prime. It's, right. it's, it's really outrageous that she is so good still. And you mentioned she's definitely in the conversation for greatest of all time. I mean, if not the greatest of all time. And the road she's had to travel to get there is at the very least, very different from her other rivals for that title and, and probably harder than most of her rivals for that, that title. And how much do you think we should take that sort of thing into consideration if we're comparing like, 
Chris Everett versus Serena Williams and saying, okay, well, well, Chrissy was America's sweetheart and Serena had a, a, a much more difficult relationship with the public. I guess the public had more of a difficult relationship with her, but yeah. she had a, a lot of obstacles that someone like Chris Everett did not. And how much, how, or how much do you think we should take that into consideration when making the sort of comparisons between superstars? I mean, I think we have to take it into consideration, right? The same way that we do when we talk about Jackie Robinson. Um, And everyone knows now what he went through off the field, what Hank Aaron went through when he was chasing uh, Babe Ruth's record. And he had people, you know, he had Secret Service people assigned to him and he had police officers trying to protect him and he was getting death threats all the time. Um, I know what it's like on on a smaller scale just to have, you know, on social media, just to have people be hurling death threats and things at you and telling you how much they don't like you all the time and calling you names and, saying they hope you get beat up and you know and I know what toll that's taken on me mentally I can't even imagine experiencing it on the scale that black athletes have um, especially when they're in a role as um, much in the spotlight as Serena is so you know yeah from a mental standpoint I think it takes someone much more mentally tough to be able to tune that stuff out I mean there's days when stuff happens to me on social media and I'm like curled up on the fetal position Um, you know, Serena has been enduring that stuff her entire career and she goes out and just kicks everyone's butt all over the place. So uh, I don't know how you can leave that out of the conversation. You can't, I mean, it's the same way that we can't, like I said, you know, you have to talk about what Hank Aaron went through off the fields, um, while you're talking about the great feat that he, that he, you know, achieved on the field. So, it's it just affects so much of you and i'm sure serena at this point you know has has a pretty thick skin and but it's it doesn't mean that it's not there and it doesn't mean you don't notice and i mean we've seen her cry um you know when her feelings are hurt and and i definitely know how that feels when you you don't want to cry and you're crying in anger you're crying because something is unjust or not fair and you're just so frustrated um i don't remember ever really seeing that kind of thing from someone like chris Everett. so yeah i mean i think you do have to take it into consideration you know, one thing that sort of set the set the tone for the media's relationship with the Williams sisters and, and maybe the public's relationship is a lot of what happened at a very early age. I mean, they were Venus and Serena were superstars as teenagers and they were getting interviewed and asked their opinion about everything and being judged for all kinds of things as teenagers. And it seems like this is it's a it's a problem in all sports, but it it seems like it might be particularly a problem in, in in women's tennis because so many of the stars break onto the scene so early. And this is another tricky balance, I think, for for journalists, because you want to treat them as as people with interesting opinions more than just, you know, athletic robots. But you also have to recognize that if you're talking to a 17-year-old, they're a 17-year-old. I mean, their opinions are not permanent, they're immature, they're sheltered, they're going to make mistakes. And as the, when you when you take those mistakes and put them in, you know, the Times of London in print forever, then it, it, it's more than just, you know, a, a bad day for a 17 year old. And do you have any thoughts about as a journalist, how you navigate that? Yeah, I mean, you know, there was a really interesting clip that popped up recently. You probably saw it and I can't remember who it was, but he was interviewing a very young Venus Williams. And she said something to the effect of, um, Gosh, I wish I could remember who was interviewing her, but she said something to the effect of like, you know, no matter who it is, I think I can win. And he said, oh, you've got a lot of confidence. And she said, yes, I do. And he said, why? And then, you know, their dad jumped up, Venus and Serena's dad jumped up and sort of was like, wait a minute, you know, stop. Like she just told you she has confidence in herself. Why are you like pushing her? And it it sort of came off as like, 
why do you have confidence in yourself? You're just, you know, a young black girl from Compton. What do you have to do with, you know, and, and it, I was really struck by that and how different everyone sort of viewed the Williams sisters and their dad back in the, you know, when they first came on the scene. And I think that knowing what we know now about um, racism and, and, and bias and, you know, all these things that we've been examining over the past couple of years and particularly this past summer with, um, you know, Black Lives Matter and a lot of very prominent black voices speaking out, especially on social media about um, unconscious bias um, in the media and the way that it manifests itself. I really look back on a lot of those interviews and I'm just sort of like, oh, like they're just very cringy to watch now because the, you know, the unconscious racism is sort of on display, whether or not the person intended it to be or not. Um, and, and so, I mean, yeah, that is, that stuff is really cringy to watch. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, God, I mean, I have teenagers. I, I can't imagine interviewing them like a regular human being because they're just not, they're kids still. I mean, they're in adult bodies, but they're, they're children still. And, I don't know. Like, I think if you go into an interview with a 17 year old or 18 year old and you're like, I'm going to interview this person like they're a grown adult, you're already missing the mark. I, I just, you just have to temper your tone. And I mean, I wouldn't interview a child that way. I wouldn't interview a teenager that way. So I, I don't know. Like, I, I mean, I don't have the experience. I, I mean, I don't have the occasion to interview a lot of like teenagers in my job, but um, I think I would approach that very differently. And I'm pretty skeptical of people who don't. Yeah, there's one funny story that comes to mind is that there was an interview or a press conference with Nick Kyrgios, the Australian, a few years ago, who's known for some sort of McEnroe-like behavior. And mm -hmm. a, a reporter asked him if he thought he would he would grow out of some of his sort of immature habits. And Kyrgios just sits there and says, are you asking if you think I'm going to mature? <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, that's a, that's a good way of phrasing that. So you have a chapter towards the end of your book that this is where like it was probably my favorite chapter in the book. Certainly the most interesting topic to me of all this stuff is is how to market women's sports um, is that there's this tremendous growth in the number of leagues out there playing opportunities professionally. But these many of the leagues are struggling financially and um, it, it's very much in flux and a, a year of the pandemic did not help at all. One thing that really stuck out to me was you quote John Wooden, I think, saying that he or a lot of people prefer women's basketball to men's basketball because the style of play is different. I mean, the point being that it's it's not like you have basketball played by men and basketball played by women. You have not two different sports, but, but two different styles of play, two different ways of playing basketball that can be enjoyable for different reasons. And I hear the same thing about tennis a lot. There's a lot of people who, who say they like women's tennis because it's not so serve dominated or it's more like um, more like the way players used to play a few generations ago. And I'm wondering, do you, do you think it seems like that insight is very important for promoting women's sports? I mean, how, how do you think you can take that idea that that women's tennis or women's basketball is really its own thing and, and turn that into like, marketing gold? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the um, one of the things I mean, and I, I, I see this when I watch soccer, um, which is a sport that I played. So I know better than I do a lot of other sports. Um, it's that, you know, I would rather watch our women's team play than our men's team. First of all, because our men's team is not great or they're better, but they're not. I mean, they haven't been good the past couple of years, but the women's teams um, are really very skilled and you can watch the strategy and you can watch the plays developing all the way from the back of the field, um, which is something that we necessarily don't see with our men who do a lot of sort of kick and run soccer. 
So, you know, so I think there's that angle, but I think the bigger issue with women's sports is that we simply, the public, because they haven't been covered for 25 years, the way that men's have, when we're talking about the WNBA specifically, um, we don't know the stories, right? I mean, we don't know the Naomi versus Serena story. We don't know the story about, you know, this player growing up with this player being her idol and now she's going to face her for the first time. And, you know, we just don't know those stories about the women's games because they've never been told. And so I think when you start to tell those stories, people then care. And, and I think that that, you know, one of the biggest um, examples of that was the WNBA following the Black Lives Matter protests, that once you started seeing these women off the feet or off the court and knowing what they were doing, knowing that, you know, Sue Bird spoke out all the time and knowing about Renee Montgomery and knowing about Maya Moore um, and who these people were and who the women were that spoke out and who the women were that, you know, supported their teammates, even if they didn't speak out, you know, it was really something I think to see um, the WNBA women all standing arm in arm locked in, in a Breonna Taylor t-shirts, something you wouldn't see from a men from a men's game. There's always going to be one guy who's going to be like, Oh, my dad served in the military. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to kneel. Um, so seeing them in that kind of unity, I think was very striking for the American people. And I think that that is part of the reason why attendance and not attendance, but viewership was up for the WNBA because people suddenly, you know, saw them getting off the bus wearing the vote Warnock shirts in, in uh, Georgia. And, and so suddenly there's a story now of these women that, you know, in some kind of context that you didn't before. And I think that is what makes us want to watch sports. And I think that's also part of the reason why leagues where you don't necessarily know the players fails. I'm thinking about like, you know, the XFL and the AAF or whatever that football league was called when you just don't know who the people are and you don't know their stories, it's way less interesting. And so that I think is the key to marketing women's sports. I think that people need to know who they are, where they come from, what their passions are, what their beefs are. I mean, that's the best thing about the NBA, right? Everybody knows who's got beef with who, and it's great fun to watch, especially during the playoffs. Um, that's the kind of stuff that I think we need to do in women's sports that people just need to get to know them better. Uh, I don't think people necessarily object to the pace the game is played at or a different kind of game or more technical game than the, than the men play. Um, I think that it's just a matter of them not knowing what they're looking at. Yeah. I mean, I think that's true for anyone learning any new sport. Like I, I became a hockey fan kind of late in life. And first time I went to a hockey game, it's like, okay, they're skating around and they're hitting each other sometimes like, great. I'm glad <laughs> I paid 60 bucks for this ticket. Um, but I mean, over time, you, even if it's just learning better the rules or learning who the players are or who the great players are, or who the role players are, that kind of thing, like, the more you know, the more enjoyable it is. And I wonder, isn't you're talking about sort of adding personality or context or character to the players we're watching. It, it seems like that has happened for, for decades in tennis. I mean, it, going back to Chris Everett again, like it, Everett versus Navratilova was a big international story for yeah. a decade. People knew who these women were. And it, it seems like that's easier in individual sports. I mean, to some extent that's happened in, in golf too. There have been female golf superstars that people knew things about. And uh, we get that in skiing now too, Lindsey Vaughn and Michaela Schifrin. Mm -hmm. um, and it is, I guess it, I was going to use the word shortcut, which is definitely the wrong word, but it, it seems harder to get there with, with team sports. I mean, does it just take more time or do you rely on someone like 
Megan Rapinoe coming forward and being a star that can be on the cover of magazines? Like, how, how do you think that process works where people start to connect more with individual players in team sports? Yeah, I think it's particularly harder in team sports with women because I think in general, not always, um, women try to sort of, I mean, I was reading, I was listening to this really interesting book called Word Slut, where one of the things she's talking about is how women use language to build consensus. And we know that when it comes to government, women try to build consensus, right? And so having played on lots of girls sports teams growing up, I really do think that girls sports and women's sports look at themselves more as a unit. Whereas I think um, men's sports, there always is, is a leader. You know what I mean? Not that there aren't leaders in women's sports as well. There are. But I just don't think that they necessarily go out of their way to stand out as much as um, they, they do in, in men's sports. And I think that's just part of the function of the way women interact with each other. You know, you, you want the good of the whole, not necessarily the good of yourself. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I do think, I mean, obviously we knew who the you know, who the leaders were of the U.S. women's national soccer team, um, you know, but we also saw Megan Rapinoe in, in a, the most recent game. I can't even remember who they were playing. Um, you know, she scores a goal in the in the final few minutes of the game and she runs over to the camera. And the first thing she does is, is pretend like she's holding a baby for two of her teammates that are out with a baby, you know, they just had a new baby. So, I mean, I, I do think that women sort of tend to take the spotlight off themselves in a lot of ways, um, in ways that men don't. And so in that regard, I think it may be a little bit more difficult, but I think that, you know, you can figure out who the leaders are, even if they're not, you know, jumping, you know, running into the crowd and jumping on top of people and stuff that there's no Lambo leaps usually in women's sports, but you, you can figure out who the leaders are. It just takes time and it takes a little, um, it takes a dedication and a discipline from the media that we're going to cover women's sports the way we cover men's sports. We're not just going to talk about it for five seconds and then move on to say we did. Oh yeah, we cover the NBA. We give the scores. It, you, it's got to be more than that. Uh, and and I think that you know that is something that that the people who market women's sports and the media that cover it need to to start thinking about. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so about the the structure of how women's leagues are run. So, is, is the WNBA still, is it still basically owned by the NBA I've, or is it independent? I think now? they get, you know, that is, I'm not 100% clear on the structure. I, I do know that there are, and I think Howard Megdal makes this great point in my book that, you know, there are WNBA teams that are profitable and there are NBA teams that are not profitable. So, um, I, you know, I do, the WNBA gets a big influx of cash, I believe, from the NBA. Um, you know, and, uh, but there are teams that are very popular and, and that stand on their own. I mean, the Minnesota Lynx, if you go up to Minneapolis, they own that town, you know, they are much better than the Timberwolves <laughs> and, um, you know, and in Chicago, the sky are, are starting to get a real following as well. So, you know, I think that we have to sort of stop looking at them as just an offshoot of the NBA that the NBA supports. That's a, that's a thing that, that, you know, like trolls love to throw out there. Like, Oh, they wouldn't even exist if the NBA didn't support them. There's NBA teams that, that aren't profitable. And there are WNBA teams that are profitable. And it was, you know, in the eighties when the NBA almost folded pre Michael Jordan, because they just couldn't, you know, they were operating at a net loss. Um, the WNBA hasn't had the marketing the NBA has had for the past 25 years. So it would be really interesting to see what that what the WNBA today would look like if, uh, you know, from the moment that they in they the WNBA was created, they said we are going to market and put as much into this as we put into the men's game. That would be really interesting to see where the WNBA would be today. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm, uh, what I was kind of leading up to is another, this is kind of another inside baseball kind of thing with tennis is that there's these ongoing conversations about whether the ATP and the WTA should, should merge. And at, at the moment, there's all these different governing bodies in tennis, men's tennis and women's tennis are almost entirely separate as far as governance is concerned. And there's talk of merging into one body. There's some obvious advantages, some possible disadvantages. And especially right now, I mean, women's tennis is not as well run. It's not a great time for the organization, even though the product is fantastic and the ATP is relatively strong from a business perspective. And I'm wondering if, you know, what are the advantages and disadvantages of that kind of move? Like, it seems like there's, there's advantages to having backing from an established enormous body with, with money to burn, whether we're talking about Manchester United or the NBA or, or whatever, but then you also run the risk of, of being just sort of a side project. And you point out in the book that some of the super clubs in Europe, even though supporting their women's club is a pretty it's a pretty minor budget item. Like it's one of the first things that, get, that gets cut during the pandemic. And, and I'm wondering like if you are the WTA right now and you're deciding, do we, do we go it alone and build from there? Or do we take advantage of a partnership with the men's game? Like how, how do you weigh those considerations? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I know it's one that um, when we had Martina on my podcast that, that my partner, Jane McManus really got into with her. Um, you know, I, I guess the the problem um, with that and, and, and what I would love to see is that, you know, if you trust the men to advocate for the women, um, if you trust a union, you know, to advocate for its least advantaged members, then it, it seems like it makes a lot of sense. But if you, you know, it, the problem is that membership is changeable, right? And, and leadership is changeable. So, you know, maybe you have a great group of guys right now who are like, you know, be on our, you know, come join us and we'll advocate for you and we will, you know, force them to, to treat you differently than they're treating you now. What happens 10 years down the road, 15 years down the road when that changes? And you're right. I mean, you do risk being a side project and being sort of shunted off um, into your own little area while all the money goes to something, you know, goes something else. I mean, this is one of the issues that the U.S. women's national hockey team fought for um, when they were trying to get paid a living wage just to play hockey and, and be the best team in the world, which we expect them to be, but then they, they don't, you know, U.S. hockey was paying them almost nothing, um, was that they, they wanted as part of their deal, um, you know, much more money going into developing women and girls hockey. Uh, you know, given some of the comments that I've heard guys make from the tennis world about, uh, you know, joining with the women, I don't know that I necessarily trust the guys there right now to be able to do that for women. Um, it, it would be a great situation. I mean, one of the things, this is my job. This is the first time I've been in a union. And one of the great things about it was that the people with the most power advocated for the people with the least power. That's absolutely the way that a union is supposed to work. Um, and, and I think you can make the same, you know, um, you can extrapolate that into all kinds of different organizations. But I, I think, you know, the, the main problem is the one you've identified that, you don't, you know, you don't necessarily want to give up control to a more powerful group than the one you're in. So one, another thing you bring up repeatedly throughout the book is that these giant men's leagues, NBA, NFL, NHL, they have a, to me, surprising number of female fans, especially when we're also talking about things like domestic violence issues that mm -hmm. uh, would for very good reason turn people off from from the leagues if not the sports entirely and 
every time when I first started going to hockey games, I was really surprised at, at how many how many women were there and, and enjoying the game because I, I just never thought of it that way. I mean, growing up, I thought of hockey as like that's where guys went to fight during the game. Um, and the leagues don't seem to embrace that very much. And I'm I'm curious, like, why do you think that is? I mean, you have you have these leagues who are doing whatever they can to expand into China or in, or into to Africa and the rest of Asia and increase their global reach. And it seems like they're neglecting like a, a huge fan base that's right there. And I mean, already already getting more into the sport and more involved and spending more money. Like, what's stopping them from embracing that? <laughs> that's a great question. Um, <laughs> I mean, they do put out pink hats. I mean, that's a thing. Um, yeah, I mean, well, that's I think enough, part right? of it, it, it's the same problem we have in um, you know sports talk radio where. Everyone's looking to expand their audience, but they 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 are you know bound and determined that their demographic is men eighteen to fifty four, and that's it. We're not going beyond that, you know. So it's it, I, a lot of it, I guess, is just plain old fashioned sexism. Women don't like sports. I mean, I, you see that on social media all the time. How many guys believe that women pick teams by their favorite colors or which has the cutest guys? And I mean, there are definitely people working in sports that believe that, right? That they, they don't think that women are necessarily worth it. Um, you know, the NFL's audience is 50% women. I think it's 47% women. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, they, I guess, as much as anyone have sort of made at least lip service to embracing their female fans. But like you pointed out, domestic violence is still an issue they sort of pay lip service to and don't care about a lot. And um, we don't see females um in females we don't see female broadcasters we don't see um you know many women on the sidelines we're starting to see a few but we don't see many um and and so i think there is a real lack of understanding i mean women watch men's sports because that's what's been put in front of us right i mean that's what we've grown up watching along with our dads and brothers is and moms is is, is men's sports so i mean of course the generation that came after title 9 it grew up with sports as central to our world as it is to men's worlds. Um, so it's bizarre to me that, that no one has really figured it out. I think as more women get into leadership and marketing positions in the pro sports teams, they will start to reach out with that. But, you know, at the same time, it's, um, you know, we've got things like Bauer hockey partnering with barstool sports, who's been known for harassing women and making their lives miserable on social media. And so, it just seems like there's a real tone deafness either in, you know, wanting women to come and, and, and spend money. And by the way, I think women make 80% of the household spending decisions. So, I mean, if you want us to buy your merchandise, I mean, we for a while didn't buy NFL merchandise in my house because of the way they were handling domestic violence situations. So, I mean, it, it would sort of behoove the NFL to care about how women are treated. It's um it's really frustrating. It's one of those things that I will never understand. And I think that unfortunately, just like sports media, it's something that is going to have to change as more women rise to leadership positions where they can make those decisions. So you mentioned a few things, uh, drastically improving how they handle domestic violence and more women in the broadcasting booth, more women on the sidelines. If 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 by some force of magic you were hired to be the NFL's head of marketing tomorrow, like, what do you do? Gosh. Um, well, I think first of all, you, you get a better handle on the way you handle violence against women. Right. I mean um, the NFL, I think is one of the, the worst um, 
when it comes to investigating it and handing down penalties. Um, so I think they really need to get a handle on that. And then I think, you know, like I was just talking about this with my podcast partner, like we, you know, we, we've lived through all the like football one-on-one things, um, you know, like, Hey, come, come have wine and we'll have a bunch of guys talk to you about how tight their pants are. I mean, that's literally what women's one-on-one women's football one-on-one used to be. And a lot of teams were getting into it. I think they need to embrace, you know, the women who are playing fantasy football. I think that, Hiring Sam Rappaport to sort of bring women into the fold has been one of the best things the NFL has done. We're starting to see more and more women on the sidelines, um, which is a good thing. But, you know, there's still things that just are, there's some real cognitive dissonance. Like, you know, we've got everyone praising Bruce Arians for, for having a diverse staff that includes women. At the same time, he's got Antonio Brown on his staff who's being sued for forcible rape and a really horrific rape. If you've read the, if you read the complaint. So I don't know. I mean, I, I think there's something to be done. I don't think the NFL has known what to do with women. Um, what, you know, it's, it's like, hey, here's a pink jersey and hey, here's a, here's wine at the games in case you want wine. That's a, that's a women thing, right? And just bring more women in who are, who are fans, who love the game, who know about the game, who play fantasy football, who know, who play Madden, who know all the same things about football as the guys do. And I don't know that it's necessarily that women want to be courted. It's just that women want to feel not excluded. And I think the NFL has done a great job of making women feel like they're not welcome, that every chance they've had of doing the right thing when it comes to domestic violence or sexual assault, they've done the wrong thing. And so, you know, including one thing that really galled me all season was watching everyone praise Tom Brady when this guy has drug Antonio Brown from New England down to Tampa Bay and made sure that he keeps getting chance after chance after chance, despite all the women who have come forward and said that he has abused them in some way. Um, that kind of thing really galls me. So I don't know. I mean, I, it's just a lack of, they just need to do a better job of, I don't know what the word is being human, just be human, just treat everyone equally. And you know what? I also think a lot of women are turned off by the way they handled Colin Kaepernick and the way that they've handled race relations. I mean, you can't just put end racism in the end zone and still not have Colin Kaepernick or Eric Reed have a job. So I don't know. There's a lot going on with the NFL. I wouldn't even know where to start, to be honest. <laughs> I guess it, it is. It is definitely a lot. And, and one thing that I, I, I was really wondering about coming away from, from your book and going through all of these issues that the sports have is I mean, I guess this is kind of a bottom line question crossing all of this is, you know, that professional sports is littered with abusers. It's run by front offices that protect their players against accusations. They're abetted by the media that's happy to cover this stuff up. And it's supported by fans who are okay with all that and who will harass a journalist before they'll admit that their hero might have done something wrong. In that world, how do you remain a sports fan? I mean, it seems like you've managed that and you remain passionate about the sports you're covering, but in, how do you do that? I don't, uh, you know, I've, I've really sort of lost interest during the pandemic because there are just so many more important things. Um, and I definitely do think, I mean, I don't love the Cubs the way that I used to because of the way that they've treated me as an organization and the things I know that have happened that they haven't addressed. And, you know, it's really difficult because I always heard that once you get into sports media and you start covering a team, you stop becoming a, you, you stop being a fan, not just because it's your job to cover it as with a skeptical eye or a critical eye, but because you see and hear so much stuff that just kind of makes it impossible. Um, you know, I think for me, it's more about wanting to be able to be part of the conversation than it is about loving a team the way that I used to. 
um, you know, if you if you're really in sports and you're in it all the time and you miss a day, you know, you miss a meme, you miss um, a joke, you miss uh, something that people are going to reference years from now that, you know, you, you know, and you want to sort of be in on the joke and be in on the conversation and be able to talk about things. So um, that's sort of it for me. It's more about staying in the conversation. I, I do, I have lost love for, for teams. I mean, it's hard when you have been a victim of sexual assault yourself. And then you hear the, I hate the term victim, you know, it's like, it, I don't, I don't like that label either. I don't know how to describe myself, but I have been sexually assaulted and, you know, to hear uh, George McCaskey, who is the head of the Bears, say, well, you know, Ray McDonald, rape victims are biased against their rapists. Yes, rape victims are biased against their rapists. You are 100% correct. And you shouldn't so. be putting a guy who is a rapist on your football team. And to hear things just so dismissed and hear the compartmentalization that people have, um, it's difficult. It's really difficult. Um but I mean, you know, I'm lucky that I live in Chicago, which is one of those places where sports is pretty much what we do all year round, especially in the winter. Um, so, you know, I think it's difficult to give up something that's been ingrained in you since you were a child. Um, but, you know, like I've always, like I said, wanted to be part of the conversation and a huge part of the conversation in society is what's happening with sports. And so for that reason, I still watch. Well, I think we're lucky that that you do and you're still involved and you keep yourself in the conversation because if if people like you with your opinions decided very understandably to go do something else with your life and and skip the trolling and skip the frustration then that would it would make it harder to get past that stuff eventually however long it takes to get to the point where female journalists aren't attacked on twitter and so on and so forth um Okay, I should probably start wrapping this up, both out of respect for your time and because I generally do these for about an hour apiece. Um, one, I, I probably haven't even gone through half of my questions, but I, I am curious. So that, as you said in the very beginning of our conversation, like you, you haven't really worried too much about, well, you worry about it. You haven't censored yourself as much as you could have um, dealing with the leagues and teams with some degree of, of power to make your life difficult. And you were able to write this book, it seemed like in part because you, you were fired from your radio job. So could you have written this book when you were still at CBS radio? So I'd already started writing it when I was still working in radio. Um, and I was concerned about what was going to happen when it came out. Um, you know, I didn't necessarily use the names of coworkers, although People who listen to the station will probably be able to figure out who's who um, because it wasn't necessarily about um, who did what to who, you know, or this person did this and I want them to be punished. It was more just about saying these are typical of the kinds of things that happen to women working in sports media. So in that sense, who did what didn't really matter. Um, yeah, I mean, I could have written it. I think it would have been, I mean, there was one day when I gave an interview to the um, Chicago Tribune and I, I described working in sports media as a woman, sort of like working in a frat house. Um, I went to work and a bunch of the guys there weren't, weren't speaking to me um, because I had said that, which to me was like such an obvious thing to say. It was, it was like, how can you not know that that's true about working in sports media? Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I could have written it and I did start writing it. Um, I think that it would have been difficult. Um, I think people would have been upset with me. I think it would have been uncomfortable 
going back to work. But yeah, I mean, I would have done it because I didn't really have a choice. I, you know, I think that when you have something to say and you don't get to say it, it destroys your soul. You know, I mean, you just, it just eats you up. And, and I want, there were things I wanted to say and I had to make a decision. Do I want, how, do I want to say this more than I care about whether or not people like me? And, um, you know, I made the decision to do the book and actually I finished it only a couple months after I had lost my job. So most of it had been written by that point. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's it, like I said, it would have been uncomfortable, but it was something that I felt like I had to do. Okay. Well, that definitely comes across in, in the book that it's, it's, it's very important stuff. Um, and just for anyone who, I, I guess people don't tune in midway through my podcast, but I, I want to repeat, I've been talking with Julie DeCaro and her new book is called Sideline Sports Culture and Being a Woman in America. It comes out Tuesday and um, you should buy a copy. There is so much more in the book beyond what we've talked about, even beyond the you know 10 or 15 more questions that I do not get to on my list. So Julie, thanks so much for writing the book and for talking to me today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jeff. It was fun. Absolutely. So thank you everyone for listening. This has been episode 99 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. Um, Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time.